You have struggled with an angel and with man, all in one encounter. The struggle without was also a struggle within. Yes, you faced an angel, but your greatest struggle was with fear itself. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 11, Fear Itself, Jacob Israel and the Battle Within. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Few today know the name Lewis Howe, but he is responsible for one of the most important lines in American history. We all associate the phrase, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, with FDR, words originally inspired by Thoreau, who had himself written that nothing is so much to be feared as fear. But the late presidential speechwriter and columnist William Sapphire further informs us that, quote, 40 years ago, compiling my first political dictionary, I asked Raymond Moley, the FDR speechwriter, who worked most closely with the president-elect on that speech, where the only thing we have to fear is fear itself came from. He said that Lewis Howe, a gnome-like, politically savvy man who was FDR's closest confidant, crossed out the early draft's opening line about no time for false hopes as lacking a forceful show of confidence. He had seen, in a recent department store newspaper ad, the fear itself quotation from Henry David Thoreau. And Howe wrote atop the draft, Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. That, Sapphire concludes, worked magnificently, end quote. But what if, ladies and gentlemen, the original reference to facing up to fear itself can be traced to a nighttime wrestling match on the banks of a biblical river in one of the most enigmatic accounts in the entire Bible? The experiences of the boy named Jacob by his parents, leading to his evolution into the individual known as Israel, requires an understanding of the implications of each of these appellations. The root of his original name, Yaakov, which means heel, is linked to the seemingly subordinate nature of this boy's birth, grasping the foot of his elder brother. Thus, Jacob or Yaakov can be read literally as, he will follow. There is, however, another meaning to be discerned, and it is referenced by Esau after the tricking of Isaac. Playing on the root of Jacob's name, Yaakov, Esau, in Genesis 27:36 proclaims, Vayakveni, he has tricked me or outwitted me. And even though I have insisted, that Jacob and Rebekah acted correctly in this episode, nevertheless, Esau does instruct us as to another aspect of Jacob's life, which is, rather than face-to-face confrontation, what is often preferred is a cunning route that avoids actual engagement with adversaries. And this, of course, was Rebekah's solution to the crisis of Esau's blessing. And that, as we will see, is by and large the way in which Jacob will approach his relationship with Laban, father of Rachel and Leah. Contending with his swindling father-in-law, Jacob proposes to be paid for shepherding with every spotted or speckled specimen born to the flock. Using some cunning approach, what exactly it involves remains, I admit, somewhat of a mystery to me, though it seems to involve an ancient approach to breeding, or the applied assistance of divine revelation, or perhaps both, Jacob ensures the birth of just such specimens of sheep. And then, When Jacob senses the intense ire of his father-in-law building against him, and the Almighty instructs him to return home, Jacob decides not to have it out, but instead to flee. Only after Laban catches up with him does he actually embrace candor, 
openly airing his grievances against Laban, and then concludes with an uneasy covenant with his father-in-law, in which both he and Laban agree not to encroach on the territory of the other. It is not the most heartwarming of family partings, but true conflict has been avoided. Jacob now sends messengers to his brother Esau, seeking to placate him. But if confrontation was what he sought to avoid, confrontation comes to him. Genesis 32, verse 7. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and moreover, he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, and he said, If Esau come to the one camp and smite it, then the camp which is left shall escape. Gifts are sent to Esau, and then we, the readers, encounter the most mysterious encounter of all. Verse 23. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his handmaids and his eleven children and passed over the river crossing of the Yabok. And he took them and sent them over the stream and sent over that which he had. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was strained as he wrestled with him. Jacob overcomes his opponent, who succeeds in injuring him but not defeating him by dawn. Who is this man? What is the significance of this injury? We begin our interpretation with the depiction of the artist who will occupy and impact tomorrow's discussion, but it's important to look at his work for our tale today as well. Rembrandt, like the rabbis, takes Jacob's opponent to be no mere man but an angel, and so he bestows upon this individual an ethereal appearance. But in Rembrandt's painting, it is Jacob's face that is truly surprising, almost shocking. For what we see is not so much exertion or pain, but something else entirely. Jacob's eyes are closed. He is strikingly, seemingly, asleep. This highlights, as many suggest, that this is also an internal encounter, rather than only a physical one. Or as Simon Shama puts it, quote, Though the Bible says only that Jacob wrestled until the breaking of the day, Rembrandt has given it the quality of a somnambulist encounter intensely felt yet physically immaterial, end quote. And others note as well that Rembrandt here seems to be giving us a struggle that is taking place inside Jacob's psyche. Now, Maimonides in his Guide for the Perplexed actually argues that this entire episode was in fact a vision of Jacob experienced while in a state of slumber, though Maimonides' perspective has provoked scorn from other commentators. First and foremost, Nachmanides, one of the other giants of Spanish Jewry, who points out that if all this occurred only in a dream, why is Jacob injured after the encounter? This is an excellent question, but let us for now abstain from this debate between these two ingenious individuals and rather highlight the fact that there are rabbis who read Jacob's struggle as both a literal and an internal experience. Here it is relevant to cite the one work of literature with which all of society today seems to be familiar, and that is the Harry Potter series. The fact that this is our only shared cultural touchstone is not necessarily the best sign for the state of affairs in contemporary civilization, but nevertheless, one of the many wonderful quotes from the series is relevant here. Harry, in a post-death conversation with Dumbledore, inquires, is this real or has this been happening inside my head? And Dumbledore replied, of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Even if we assume, as do most commentators, as indeed I do, 
that the wrestling match between Jacob and the angel was a literal external occurrence. Nevertheless, we can also suggest the physical wrestling to parallel an internal emotional one, a battle within Jacob's soul, within his mind, within his heart. And the fact that this occurs in his psyche does not mean that it is not also real. What was this inner struggle inside Jacob? The answer quite clearly would be a wrestling with fear. Though God did earlier inform Jacob that, behold, I will be with you and protect you in all the ways you walk, nevertheless, Jacob is without question terrified at Esau's approach. It is Jacob's fear that provides the context for a remarkable reading by Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir, known as Rashbam, a medieval commentator always attentive to the plain meaning of the text. Why, Rashbam notes, does the encounter with the angel take place only after Jacob was attempting to cross the river Yabok with his family? Rashbam further takes note of other texts in the Bible where a river is used strategically to place a barrier between one's enemy and oneself, and he argues that in crossing the river, Jacob had decided to escape any encounter with his brother. This is exactly what God did not want to happen, and that is why the angel was sent to stop him. And when the angel was unable to prevail, he injured Jacob in his thigh, establishing a permanent limp to ensure that he cannot run, that he must face his foe, his brother, and attempt a rapprochement. Jacob had to overcome an angel, but he also had to overcome fear itself. For this reading, what follows when the patriarch's appellation is changed can now be understood perhaps even more profoundly. Yaakov, Jacob literally means he will follow after, and that is the name that he has borne up to this point in exile. But in order to return to the land of Israel and emerge as a leader, Jacob had to not only externally confront his brother, but also internally to overcome his fear. And thus the name that is suddenly bestowed by the angel upon Jacob reflects the change within himself. Genesis 32, 27. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob but Israel, for thou hast striven with spiritual beings and with man, and you have prevailed. Yisrael, Israel, is linked to Sarita, thou hast struggled, thou hast wrestled. The struggle with the spiritual being is obviously the angel. But who is the man with whom he has struggled? Perhaps this is a reference to his scheming father-in-law Laban, or to his original encounter with his brother in the land of Israel. But those, as we have seen, were not struggles, but actually acts of avoidance. Perhaps, perhaps, the man with whom Jacob has struggled is himself with his own emotions, his fears, and in overcoming them, he emerges as Israel. You have struggled with an angel and with man, all in one encounter. The struggle without was also a struggle within. Yes, you faced an angel, but your greatest struggle was with fear itself. What immediately follows is Jacob's, or Israel's, first deliberate face-to-face encounter with an adversary. He meets Esau, and both weep and are reconciled. Esau goes to his newfound territory to create the nation later to be known as Edom, and Jacob journeys on to Canaan, now unassailably his. Fear itself has been defeated, and Jacob as Israel can now cultivate what will one day be known as the land of Israel. The wrestling match did not only occur in his head, but what occurred in his head was all too real. Is that perhaps what Rembrandt is asking us to see? We cannot know, but Jews have always interpreted this nocturnal fight as portending a struggle within the Jewish soul yet to come. Thus, 
an explanation given for why the angel would injure Jacob inside his thigh, close to the limb of perpetuation. Building on the Talmud, Nachmanides argues that this represents the threats that Israel's enemies will pose to Jewish continuity far into the future. For Nachmanides, who himself suffered and fled the persecution of Spain, the physical struggle of Jacob with the angel portends all the torture and psychological persecutions to follow. The attempts to make the Jew bend the knee, to seize ultimately to be Jews. But in the end, what occurred with Jacob, we believe, will be repeated in every generation in its own way. And they wrestled till dawn, and then his adversary saw that he could not overcome him. Jewish continuity, in other words, endures. In one of my introductions to Bible 365, I quoted the exquisite, admiring words of Philadelphia Archbishop Charles Chaput, who dedicated his Sunday homily to discussing his impressions of visiting Yeshiva University and the study hall where hundreds of students engage in daily learning of the Torah. I saw, the Archbishop said, in the lives of those Jewish students the incredible durability of God's promises and God's word. Despite centuries of persecution, exile, dispersion, and even apostasy, the Jewish people continue to exist because their covenant with God is alive and permanent. God's word is the organizing principle of their identity. It's the foundation and glue of their relationship with one another, with their past and with their future. And the more faithful they are to God's word, said Chaput, the more certain they can be of their survival, end quote. Interpreted this way, to stare at Rembrandt's image of Jacob's seeming somnambulous struggle is to see a struggle throughout Jewish history. At times, the struggles differ from one another. We have struggled with internal fear, as Rashbam reads the story. We have struggled with the physical persecution of our enemies, as Nachmanides reads the tale. And we have also wrestled with the internal allure of assimilation. And for contemporary Jewry, we can look at Rembrandt's closed eyes of Jacob and see the struggle as one that is also within ourselves, the struggle to proudly hold on to our identity and to identify covenantally as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wherever we may go. FDR might have claimed the credit for fear itself and consigned his speechwriter to anonymity. But there were examples of other presidents who did the opposite, taking their speechwriter's products and polishing them into some of the most famous lines in American oratory. As Abraham Lincoln prepared for his first inaugural address, he had originally intended to end his speech in a bellicose manner threatening war. Lincoln showed the draft to William Seward, whom he had asked to serve as the Secretary of State. Seward counseled that Lincoln instead end in a conciliatory manner and wrote his own draft for Lincoln's use of the inaugural ending. Seward composed as follows. The mystic chords which, proceeding from so many battlefields and so many patriot graves, pass through all the hearts and all hearths in this broad continent of ours, will yet again harmonize in their ancient music when breathed upon by the guardian angel of the nation. Lincoln adopted Seward's conciliatory approach, but he edited Seward's words, showing his own genius for the English language, as well as his great psychological insights. Gifting us, one of the most famous sentences in American speechwriting history. Lincoln ultimately said, The mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. Seward referred in his draft to a guardian angel of the nation, a messenger of God. Lincoln, in turn, spoke not of external angels, but of the better angels of our nature, by which he means our spiritual capacity 
the human ability to bring love to bear over anger. Seward wrote of guardian angels, and Lincoln spoke of our souls. Are angels external or part of ourselves? Are they providential beings or sacred aspects within us? Both Seward and Lincoln are correct. We read in Scripture often of ethereal messengers of the divine that help advance the providential plan. But there are also angels within us, aspects of us. And Jacob's nighttime struggle may well have been with an angel, but it also occurred within his soul. It reflected the triumph of courage over fear, the better angels of his nature, emerging victorious. Not all of us will encounter our guardian angels, but we can all make manifest the better angels of our nature inside ourselves. Thus, though few of us will wrestle a mysterious man on the banks of the Yabok River, all of us called to bear the covenant of the man named Israel will, in some way, at some point in our lives, have to wrestle to find the courage within, to overcome fear itself, and to make Jacob's triumphant struggle our own. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.